In July of 2015, uh, a student who attended the same seminary that I was at uh, was driving in southern Indiana when his car was struck by another vehicle, and he was taken to the hospital, but he did not survive. Of course, that, that in and of itself is tragic and sad, uh, but making it seem even more tragic is the fact that he left behind a wife and three young daughters, and what's more, his wife was just two weeks away from giving birth to their first son. Tragedies like this one and many others of different varieties happen every day. They happen all around the world. They're constantly occurring. On the age of the internet, the 24-hour news cycle, it might even seem more apparent and more obvious and maybe worse uh, these days. And we respond in different ways to, to news of these things. And sometimes we don't really know exactly how to respond. Sometimes we just feel sadness, maybe sympathy. We might contribute to someone's GoFundMe page campaign. Uh, we might sometimes be tempted to feel despair as we hear of these tragedies. And if a tragedy was not an accident, but the result of human evil, well, we might have a strong desire well up within us for justice. Uh, or maybe we'll be filled with anger, a desire for vengeance. Also, we, we, we draw uh, certain lessons, uh, sometimes implicitly or even subconsciously, we draw lessons from these things. So sometimes we make a commitment to drive more carefully. Uh, maybe we, you know, we commit to putting the phone down and actually not texting. Uh, perhaps we'll make a decision never to visit a particular city if they'd had a great tragedy of some kind there. Uh, maybe we'll see need or what we perceive as need for changes to certain laws or policies that could maybe help prevent future tragedies. And of course, along the way, the question of why these things happen often come are at the forefront of our minds. Well, as we begin Luke chapter 13, as we continue going through Luke, we will see Jesus discuss two different tragedies and address a false understanding of why they occurred. And then in its place, he'll give an important lesson for us to learn, something to consider ourselves when we see or hear of tragedies occurring. So I'll invite you to read with me Luke 13, uh, verse 1 to 9. This is the word of the Lord. It says, There were some present at that very time who told him, that's Jesus, about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The, the lesson here in these verses is this, that the frailty of life 
is firstly a reminder that getting right with God is an urgent matter for all. The frailty of life is firstly a reminder that getting right with God is an urgent matter for everyone. I say it's firstly a reminder of this because there, obviously there, there can be different reasons why evil happens and there's many lessons that we can take from it and learn from it. Uh, there are also many appropriate responses to tragedies when they occur, uh, which aren't mentioned in this text. But Jesus shows us what I think is step one, that, that tragedies like this remind us of the necessity of getting right with God while we can. So as we begin, let's look at the, the two tragedies. So in verse 1, some people bring up these Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Uh, it says that these people brought this up at that very time, Luke writes, uh, which means that the context of this is the same as uh, the previous chapter. And we'll come back to that in just a moment to see the significance of, of the context. Uh, but this event that's brought up to Jesus, it's one that we don't uh, know really anything about except what's written here. Uh, this is not recorded in any of the other Gospels. It's not recorded in any other material either outside of the Bible. Um, but Pontius Pilate, who uh, it says did this act, performed this act, uh, he is attested to have been a violent and cruel man, uh, not only in other places in the New Testament, but also uh, outside of the Scripture too, in other sources as well. Uh, it's known that he was a cruel uh, and brutal individual. Uh, so this, this is not in any way, this is not out of step with what we know about Pilate. It's in keeping with uh, who he was, from what the Bible paints of him, that picture, and even outside of Scripture and other, other sources. Pilate, of course, was the, the Roman prefect. Uh, Luke, in chapter 3, calls him a governor. Uh, so he, he ruled over the province of Judea, which is uh, Jer where Jerusalem is, and, and uh, and, and so, so uh, Pilate rules over this. If you'll remember Herod, we're familiar with Herod Antipas. He is the one who put, uh, put John the Baptist in prison and eventually had him killed. He rules in, he's called the Tetrarch. He's in Galilee, so that's in the north, around if you can picture the Sea of Galilee. And then south in Judea, uh, we have here, it used to be uh, Archelaus, who was uh, Herod's brother in charge, but uh, Rome removed him, and instead they brought in a prefect, a Roman governor, to rule it. And at this time in history, it's, it's this man, P Pilate. As for what exactly happened here, it says that the blood of these Galileans was mixed with the blood of their sacrifice. So this could have literally been a sacrilegious act in which Pilate had these people killed for whatever reason and then sprinkled their blood along with the blood of their sacrificial animal on the altar, uh, thus mocking and obviously desecrating the altar of Almighty God. Obviously, this is a revolting, blasphemous act. Uh, others take the language here to be more figurative or poetic, with the point being that Pilate killed these Galileans as they were worshiping or as they're on their way to worship, uh, either way, it's a brutal act, it's a tragedy, it's an overstep of authority, it's an unjust act. And I think it doesn't explicitly say this was unjust, these people didn't do anything to deserve this, but I think we can reasonably infer that from, from what's written here. Uh, also, um, the Pilate 
in the year 36 would lose his post as Roman prefect for a very similar thing. He slaughtered a bunch of Samaritans in a very similar way, uh, and that is attested in other uh, sources from the first century. And so, uh, so even the Romans themselves realized this guy's brutal and uh, and removed him from his post. He was he was not a, a nice man. He was not just. He was he was harsh and brutal. And so this is truly uh, tragic and an overstep of an abuse of his authority. It's what we might call a moral evil, a human agent committing a wicked act. And so this is tragedy number one that's in our, our scripture today. The second tragedy, uh, likewise, is something we don't know anything about other than what we find here. Uh, this time, Jesus is the one who brings this up uh, for the crowd to consider in verse 4. And he mentions there this tower of Siloam, which fell, and he says, crushed and killed 18 people. That's a significant, significant tragedy. We know of the Pool of Siloam. Uh, it was located in the southwestern part of Jerusalem. Uh, it's mentioned in John chapter 9, where Jesus uh, healed a blind man there. And uh, the tower that fell was likely on the wall by this pool, perhaps a guard tower of some sort. And for whatever reason, we don't know why, uh, but it fell. It fell and 18 people ended up dying. That's obviously a, a significant tragedy. It, it seems to be a freak accident, uh, not an intentional moral evil, um, but a tragedy nonetheless. So we have these two tragic occurrences here. Uh, now notice the one false assumption there's a false understanding running through these verses that this crowd has. So there's a question of why did they bring this up? Why are they bringing this up to Jesus now? Why bring up this tragedy that Pilate committed with these Galileans? Why are they saying this? Well, in verse 1, as, as I said, the, the, the wording there ties this context to chapter 12. So he says there that it was brought up at that very time. Uh, so this is Luke telling us this is closely connected to what has just come before in chapter 12. Uh, sometimes we've said Luke's gospel is in a broadly chronological order, uh, but not everything in it is strictly chronological. It's orderly. So sometimes he has accounts that are perhaps out of chronological order, but they're there for a reason. Perhaps he's dealing with a theme in a particular section, and so he brings in a story that might be out of chronological order, but it fits in there. And oftentimes... Uh, when there isn't necessarily a direct chronological order, you'll just see the word now. We'll introduce the next text. So if you look down at verse 10, uh, which we'll look at next week, uh, now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. Uh, that word, it's not tying it directly chronologically to what came before. It's just a general transition. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues. But in verse 1, he emphatically says, at that very time, there were those who told him this. So he's, 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 he's explicitly drawing our attention to the context. This is when they brought it up. And so what is that context? Well, back in chapter 12, verse 1, there's a large crowd pressing in around Jesus. <clears throat> and so he begins to instruct them. So he, Instructs the crowd. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> all right. Hopefully that's all right. So he 
he begins instructing this crowd in chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 12, and then he moves on, he starts to instruct the disciples specifically, and then, in, uh, and then he, he broadens it back out again to the rest of the crowd. We see that in verse 54. Uh, and, and in 54, to the, to the end of the chapter, uh, verse 59, uh, he's warning them about the times, and he calls them to settle with their accuser, namely God, while there is still time, to settle with him, to get right with him. In fact, the whole of chapter 12 has to do with preparing ourselves to stand before God when we die, and, and living this life now in light of the end, in light of that day. And again, the chapter ends with this call to settle with God now while there's still time. And into this context now, some people step forward and bring up this group of people who perished brutally at the hands of Pilate. And I think we can see why uh, even clearer as we look at Jesus' response in verse 2. So in verse 2, he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? So they bring up this incident about Pilate and these Galileans as if to say, well, we can't be as bad as these people. You know, these people who were slaughtered by Pilate, they met this untimely end. They clearly had issues. We can't be that bad. All this talk about judgment, getting right with God, warnings throughout this, this whole discussion in chapter 12. Uh, but what about these people? We're clearly not as bad as them. And so they're dodging Jesus' instruction, and they find an excuse in their own relative prosperity and the destruction of others. We're doing quite well, which tells us God is blessing us and we're not that bad, whereas those people got it. And if we are really as bad as you say, then we would probably be getting it like them, but we haven't, and we're doing well. So the answer to Jesus' question, from the perspective of the crowd of these people who brought this story forward, their answer to his question is, yes, yes, we do think that they're worse sinners than us. And this is their false assumption. Uh, Jesus repeats this again in verse 4. If you look, he, he then presents another tragedy. Where those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders, worse debtors than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And he answers, no, again. So he addresses a false understanding of how things work. Uh, one, a false understanding that is seen in a number of places in the Bible and is still held today by lots of people. Namely, that tragedies happen to a person as a direct result of a specific sin or a direct result of being extra sinful. And if it's not an obvious sin, then it must be something that's hidden. And we have a way as humans of of, of, of arguing this and then letting ourselves off the hook. We see this in Jesus' own disciples in John 9, where they encounter a man born blind and they ask Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that the man was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. So they assume that this man's blindness, this Suffering, this consequence, well, it, it's got to be a consequence, a direct consequence of somebody's sin. It has to be, either his or his parents. And Jesus denies that. Uh, we also see this thinking in the book of Job. Uh, we know Job's suffering was great. And in chapter 4, verse 7, Job's friend Eliphaz says to him, Remember, Job, 
Who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. So the tragedy for Job in the mind of his friends proved that Job was unrighteous, proved that he had some secret sin. How could we know that? Because those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. You're reaping trouble, therefore you have plowed, you have sown iniquity. You are clearly sinful. There's something going on here you're not being honest about. This is what his friends think, and they're proven false in the book. Perhaps we don't think we have that attitude, um, but we can reveal that we do have that attitude if we feel that our own suffering is unwarranted. It's really the flip side of the coin. Uh, We feel that we've done enough good and we don't deserve to suffer in any way. Suffering comes, I feel like I don't deserve this. So we're still seeing, if we think that way, we still see a direct relationship between our actions and suffering. This suffering is for others who are worse than me. I haven't done anything to deserve this. It's thinking much the same way. Job himself seemed to believe this at one point. Ironically, in in Job 30, verse 3, he says, Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? So this such calamity, this calamity I'm experiencing, uh, should be for other people. I've not done what deserves this. It was for those who are worse than him. And so the people here raised the Galilean tragedy as an excuse. We're not as bad as them. What you say can't be true. Otherwise, we would have already faced this. But Jesus corrects them by denying their claim. It does not mean that any of these people were worse sinners. Now notice something important. Jesus does not say that sin had nothing to do with the tragedies. He's not saying sin has played no role in this whatsoever. Rather, he denies that they were extra sinful or any more sinful than the next person. It's not always like that. It's not always just a direct line, really sinful person, and they get it in this lifetime. Uh, We can't just make a blanket statement like this. Job's friends. So Jesus doesn't say that sin had nothing to do with the tragedies, and the reason, obviously, is because the tragedies exist because of sin. The reason tragedies exist is because of sin. The Galileans who were killed, they weren't extra sinful, that's not what this was communicating, but they were, in fact, sinful. We know this because they were humans. We know this because Romans 3.23 tells, sorry, uh, yeah, Romans 3.23 tells us that everybody has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, We know they are sinful because they died. Uh, Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So the reason people die, anyone dies, in any way, is because we have sinned. We see this clearly explained back in Genesis chapter 2. Before Adam and Eve had ever sinned, when everything was still perfect, in chapter 2, verse 16, God says, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you will surely die. And when Adam sinned in Genesis 3, 
We see God curse him and say in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The wages of sin is death. Whether it's relatively peaceful death in an old age, or whether it's a tragic, painful death, all of it is the result of sin. Death is God's judgment on sin. So when we hear of death, it ought to then cause some self-examination. We too will die. We too have sinned. Humans aren't the only ones affected by the curse of sin. All of creation is under a curse because of sin. Again, back in Genesis 3, when God was cursing Adam and Eve for their sin, pronouncing the curse, he says to Adam in verse 17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Work, your labor will be difficult. Earth itself is transformed because of your sin and under this curse. Paul in Romans 8 expands on this a little. Verse 20 to 22. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So everything, everything has been cursed because of sin. And this is the magnitude, the consequence of Adam's sin. Even animals, it shows up in the animal order. In what we might call the natural order. All of this has been corrupted because of sin. If it weren't for sin and the subsequent curse upon creation because of it, there would be no earthquakes causing destruction and death. There would be no hurricanes killing people or floods killing people. We would not deteriorate in old age. Towers would not fall on people. Pilate would not murder people. Such is the severity, the price, the cost of sin. And it's not just so-called extra sinful sin. One seemingly harmless act of disobedience in the garden, namely eating fruit, seemingly harmless as some might consider it at least, unleashed all of this. It is true that suffering and death is the result of sin, but it doesn't mean that suffering and prosperity are accurate, direct reflections of one's level of sinfulness or piety. Sometimes believing, faithful, godly people like Job suffer. And sometimes wicked people seem to have a great life, seem to have it all. But the teaching of Scripture and the teaching of Luke 12 and now Luke 13 is that complete and true Perfect justice will come about at the end, and this is precisely why we are to prepare for it now. And this is the first lesson when we hear of tragedy and death. We must prepare ourselves for this. So one implication here of this, I think, is that we need to put off thinking that our circumstances directly reflect God's level of pleasure with us. Things are going well. God obviously is, is pleased. Your prosperity is not necessarily a sign of God's 
pleasure with us. We saw, if you think of the rich fool back in chapter 12, uh, the rich man in that parable uh, was a fool. He was not right with God. It didn't mean that he was right with God because he had much. Moreover, we must not think that when trial comes, we just need to find that one sin that's causing our trial and then repent of it. And then if we do, God will then have to restore a blessing to us. It doesn't always work that way. A trial may come in and we recognize God's discipline for us and we're trusting it's his loving discipline for us. But there could be many sins that are revealed through that trial may not be direct connection between that trial and a particular sin that has brought it on. There might be no obvious you know, areas of sin uh, or any particular worse sins in us, and yet we are under this trial. Uh, we might repent of all known sin we can possibly examine and find in ourselves, and yet the trial continues. So we must not think that that is necessarily an indication that God is angry or that there's some hidden or secret sin within so we are to bear up in those moments under it and quietly wait upon the Lord to move us through it. Additionally, uh, if any of us here finds our security with God in the prosperity he has given us, this is something that we need to repent of. God gives graciously and mercifully to people, not because you earn it. And again, it may or may not be a sign of your holiness. And as Job discovered, God also, not only does he give graciously and mercifully, but sometimes he also takes away for purposes we can't fully grasp and we may never fully understand in this life. So Jesus corrects their false assumption and then he leaves them here with two options. He does not let them weasel out from what he's saying. He's calling them to be ready to get right with the Lord. And they are putting forth this argument that perhaps we're not that bad because we have not suffered this kind of a fate. And he does not let them dodge. He keeps it uh, pressed upon them. Look at verse 2 again. He says, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. Your conclusion is wrong. And then he says, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? And then he repeats verse 3, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So here is the options he presents to them. Repent or perish. Jesus addresses this to everyone. To all. If you don't repent, you will all likewise perish. This is for everybody listening, he says. It's for all of those to whom Luke writes this. Theophilus and everyone else who read it, it's for us to take to heart. When he says you will likewise perish, that word likewise can mean similarly. Jesus is not saying that they will die in the same tragic fashion as these other people. But really he's pointing to a greater perishing that is God's eternal judgment for sinners. So a number of times in chapter 12, again, the context of this, a number of times in chapter 12, this judgment is mentioned. In 12 verse 5, we're told that God is the one who possesses authority not only to kill, but after he has done that, to throw a person into hell. 
1220, the rich fool, his soul, he's, is called to account before God. He needs to now stand before God. In 1246-48, it speaks of the Lord's future judgment on wicked men. And then in verses 54 to 59, there are warnings that judgment is near and that they need to settle with God before that time comes. So the perishing that Jesus warns about here, it is similar to what happened to these people in these tragedies, but it is different and it is greater. It's like in 2 Peter 2.6 where uh, Peter tells us that Sodom and Gomorrah serve as an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. It is the same type of lesson here. Death is a reminder of judgment for sin. As Sodom and Gomorrah, they picture the final judgment God is going to bring upon the ungodly, Peter says in 2 Peter 2. It's a similar lesson here. Death is a reminder of judgment for sin. It's a foreshadowing of the second death when God sends sinners to hell. And Jesus shows us here that when we hear of people dying and of tragedy striking, these events are first a reminder that we too are sinful and we will perish if we do not repent of our sin. Again, Romans 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And at any moment, just like the rich fool in Jesus' parable in chapter 12, at any moment, our time could be up. Urgency flows throughout this chapter, throughout chapter 12 and now into 13. It's an urgent matter, Jesus is saying. These people, they bring up the excuse, we're not as bad as these people, and he keeps pressing this home for them. And amazingly, while there is breath in our lungs, there is still time to repent. And yet these warnings keep us from the presumption that there will be breath in our lungs tomorrow. And it drives home the urgency. In fact, Jesus tells this parable in verses 6 to 9 to make this very point. I'll just invite you to read that with me again. When he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. And if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. So this now illustrates what Jesus is saying. Repent or perish. The parable shows us God's patience. The tree is not chopped to the ground right away, though there's a sense in which it deserves to be. It's not producing fruit. And yet, there's, there's this waiting. There's time given to see if the, will recover, the tree will recover. But time for the tree will run out eventually. And the axe will be laid to it. And so too, Jesus is showing and saying that time is running out for these people he's talking to. That the time to settle with their accuser is now. Romans 2 uh, verse 4 and the surrounding verses shows us that God's kindness and his patience with people should lead us to repentance. We have a perverse way of thinking that uh, God's patience uh, is, a, is, a, is an automatic sign that everything's fine or maybe it's evidence that uh, you know, Jesus is not going to return or God will not bring about judgment. 
and uh, we tend to turn it into license to do wicked and evil. And yet Paul tells us there his patience should lead us to repentance while there's time. That's what Jesus is saying here. And so tragedy and the fragile nature of life in general ought to first serve as a reminder for us and everyone that death is the consequence of sin, that the death bell tolls for all. And we therefore need to be prepared for this and reconciled to God now while there's still time. And amazingly, this is possible. Reconciliation with God Almighty is possible. The God that we sang about, whose ways are so far above our ways, who ultimately we can't fully comprehend, we can be reconciled to this God because Jesus has come, God's Son, and because of His redemptive work. Because He came, died on the cross, bearing the guilt of sinners, bearing the sin of sinners upon Himself, taking upon Himself the curse of God, being slayed in the place of sinners, having the wrath of God poured out upon him, dying, rising again from the dead in victory over death and over the grave. Because of this work, we can be forgiven. And everyone who repents and trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, will be saved, will be forgiven, will be reconciled to God. The guilt of the sinner taken by Christ and paid for and the righteousness of Christ given to the sinner. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. So this is the good news. Forgiveness is available through Jesus Christ. When Jesus says to repent, he also made possible our forgiveness. I just want to note something else here um, in this text. Uh, the response that Jesus has to these tragedies, it might look harsh or maybe unfeeling or uncaring, um, but this is not the case. Um, he, he's not ruling out compassion and sympathy for people who are suffering through tragedy. We see him weep with Martha when Lazarus died. In this context, he's not dealing with people who are mourning this loss. He's dealing with people who are using this tragedy to vindicate themselves. It's a very, very different thing. And so his answer is a little bit direct and straightforward and might seem not maybe caring to us. I don't, it's not that he doesn't care about any of this or care for them. It's that he sees through this game they're playing and this charade, and he's just keeping things focused right on them. He's not letting them get around what he's trying to say to them. And so again, as we consider tragedy, this is why I say it firstly teaches us about our own need to get right with God. Because it doesn't mean that there's no place for mourning. It doesn't mean we should not mourn with those who mourn, that we should never weep when tragedy occurs. We just, you know, stoically, uh, this just means everyone should repent. That's not at all what's happening here. It's good and it's right to mourn with those who mourn, to show compassion upon people who are suffering. 
And of course, we take the gospel as part of that comfort that we would give to someone. We would still take the lesson that Jesus gives us here, the need to get right with God, and we would go and we could compassionately go to someone who's suffering, who's mourning, and comfort them with the good news of the gospel. It was nine years ago this month uh, that a devastating earthquake rocked the country of Haiti. Somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 people died, and many more were injured and displaced. You, if you're old enough, you remember uh, how awful that was. And I heard a man on TV shortly after say that Haiti was being punished for selling their souls to Satan. Now, there's no question that Haiti is a dark place where voodoo flourishes. And we know that all death is the result of sin, ultimately. But if our conclusion is that the earthquake proves that there were sinners than we here in Canada, where our evil is much more civilized, and we wear suits and ties when we do it, and we live in nicer houses while we do it, and we can legally uh, go down to the hospital and terminate a baby, if our conclusion is that they're worse than us, and this, and this, you know, this tragedy proves it, then we're drawing the wrong conclusion. If such events or any other like it make us feel better about ourselves, then we are guilty in the way that these people in Luke 13 were guilty. The fact is the frailty of life is firstly a reminder that getting right with God is an urgent matter for all. Unless we repent, we will all likewise perish. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we we read these words and we hear these words and we feel the weight of it. We feel the weight of the fact that the wages of sin is death. And, and we see it played out every day. We see it played out in our own neighborhood, in our own city. God, I pray that, that we would be those who understand the truth of life and death, that, that death is the wages of sin, and that whenever and wherever we find it, it is a reminder of these eternal realities, that we, we need to settle with you while there's still time. And God, we have sinned, We've fallen short, and so we are thankful that Jesus has died to save sinners, and that there is mercy and there is forgiveness and grace. We thank you and praise you that for every one of us who is trusting in Christ and has repented, that we can be confident of Christ's redemptive work, confident that in him we have the righteousness of God, that we can stand before you. And God, we confess again that our only hope is Christ, that we have no righteousness of our own that would merit us the ability to stand before you when we die, but our only hope is Christ. And so we, are, we, we rejoice and we praise you for your grace and your salvation. We pray that we would live in light of Christ's return, that we would live in light of the end, that uh, knowing that any time 
we might return to you. And I pray that we would be a spiritually minded and eternally minded people as a result. God, I pray that you would fill us with compassion for those who, who do suffer, whether it's people in this room or others. And God, we pray that we would, as we comfort, that we would be those who bring the truth of the gospel to other people who are suffering. I pray for everyone here now who is suffering loss, who's dealing with tragedy in some way, suffering various trials, that we would, that, that you would comfort them, that you would help them to, to know the greatness of your salvation, and that they would find great comfort there. And Father, I pray that each person here would take to heart the warnings that Jesus gives us. Father, we pray that each person here would be those who would, would be ones who stand before you justified. Father, we, we thank you for your grace, your mercy. We thank you for this time. Thank you for your word, even when it's difficult or even when it's heavy. We're thankful for it. We need to hear it. We need to understand these things. So we praise you. We thank you for your good word. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.